Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman, and today we're speaking with Marcia Ochoa, the author of Queen for a Day, Transformistas, Beauty Queens, and the Performance of Femininity in Venezuela. It's a detailed ethnography that brings two kinds of feminine performances into the same analytical frame. Her focus on transformistas and beauty queens allows her to draw relationships among power, beauty, violence, and space. The book contributes to scholarship on politics and gender in Venezuela by understanding them as bound together, and along the way there are some searing and moving portraits of the people who are her subjects. So welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to start by asking you to say a little bit about your background, how you came to be an anthropologist, and what drew you to this particular project. Well, uh, I did not expect to end up being an anthropologist. Um, I'm a but I'm a child of what they call the brain drain. My parents were both research scientists, both Colombian, um, and uh, both educated outside of Colombia uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, I was born while my father was in graduate school studying veterinary pathology in the United States. Um, so I actually grew up my first six years in, uh, in Colombia, in Bogota, um, and came to the United States, and I think ever since then have been trying to figure out what the heck is going on in this country. Um, and, uh, and I've always uh, sort of had that positionality of observer. Um, and so I think I, I fit nicely into the kind of anthropology that was going on at the University of Michigan when I was an undergraduate. And I had the really wonderful luck to work with uh, Ruth Bahar, uh, who was my first, uh, probably the reason I'm an anthropologist, uh, actually, is Ruth. Um, and, and she was really the person who, um, through a class she taught called Narratives of the Self, uh, introduced me to the room there was in anthropology for articulating the, the multiple and varied stories um, of, of people's existence. Um, and so through Ruth, I saw really some room um, to think about, you know, not just my positionality, but, but, um, but sort of the, the uh, transits that have occurred to make all of our lives possible um, and to ask the questions that that I have to ask. So, um, so I was very fortunate to, to get into anthropology that way. Um, and, um, I, you know, uh, ultimately decided not to go to graduate school. Uh, when I was in my twenties, I started working in HIV housing, um, and, uh, doing queer activism. And, um, I came to a point where I, I ran out of ways to think about the problems I was encountering in my life, uh, the, the kinds of, uh, situations that, the organizations I was working with were trying to in, in, uh, confront, particularly around the survival of queer and trans people from Latin America. Um, and um, I was very moved uh, to work with the transgender women in that community in the Mission District of San Francisco um, and uh, have, have done that work ever since. Um, and but this book is part of that long trajectory of sort of taking what I'd learned um, about trans trans survival in the mission district and looking in Venezuela for 
those conditions of possibility and, and those specific forms that this took in Venezuela. Um, so that's so sort of a roundabout way to get to anthropology. Um, you know, but, uh, but I think I was called back to anthropology at some point because I ran out of ways to think about the problems I was encountering in the world. That's really fascinating. And, uh, I was interested to hear you mention Ruth Behar because it, 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 it relates to the first question I was thinking oh. of asking you before even getting into the arguments of the book and the, and the structure. I was interested in the title. So oh. Queen for a Day, mm-hmm. um, especially because in the book you use the Spanish phrase Reina de la Noche, which of course mm-hmm. means Queen for the Night. Mm-hmm. And so I was interested in the, the way that you translated it and if there's some, something significant about about the, the yeah. queen of the night turning into the queen of the day. Well, you know, it's funny because um, if I had had my way, and I, I love this title, I think it's a really nice title that tells people what the book is about. Um, but but in my head, I've always called this book Belleza Venezolana, mm. uh, because that's the phrase that people in Venezuela would say over and over again about beauty, that, that, that there is a thing called Belleza Venezolana that has special qualities. And that, that's one of the things I really look through. And, and one of the chapters of the book, is, of, course, of course, is called Belleza Venezolana. Uh, but Queen for a Day really stuck uh, because I think it gives people a sense of the specialness uh, that is produced by this form of femininity. And, um, and also, I think it's a contingent kind of specialness, right? It's a it's only a space of possibility within particular confines. Some people think of the, um, the game show in the, in the sixties, uh, fifties and sixties, I guess, um, that, uh, that, you know, some people in the United States have a memory of. Um, and in part, I think that informed my, my understanding of it, although I didn't really watch that show. Um, but, uh, but I know a lot of people do get that reference to that show and that, that show involved, basically taking a woman um, who was a, a housewife out of her ordinary environment, having her tell her story and finding out uh, sort of having the a decision uh, through the deliberation with the audience and the host about who kind of needed this uh, appliance the most. And then it was sponsored, I think by a, a washing machine company or something like that. Um, and, uh, and then the appliance would be gifted to this woman to make her life easier. Um, and so she would be the queen for the day. Um, the translation that I, that I made was actually in, in a consultation with a friend of mine who's a, a Spanish, uh, PhD, uh, Spanish literature PhD. And I was really trying to find, you know, cause I thought Reina Burgundia, that sounds right, but it's not really catchy, you know, the way queen for a day is. It doesn't really, there's no TV shows called Reina Polumbia that I know of. Um, and so uh, she was saying that in Tijuana, on her experience, Reina de la Noche was kind of what you called somebody who was having that kind of special day for themselves. Um, and so we chose Reina de la Noche. Uh, and, you know, it also has connotations around sex work. Um, right. And, um, and I think that, uh, you know, the imaginary that I'm working with um, in Venezuela um, is one that has room for all kinds of self-making projects that involve people in lots of different places in life. And I think part of the intervention is to not shy away from the sort of, um, the idea that, that, uh, transgender sex worker could be in the same analytic frame as a, as a hegemonic beauty queen. Um, so I think for me, part of, part of the translation into Spanish as Reina de la Noche is to kind of encapsulate that, that possibility of duality, right. Of, of, um, of actually having this kind of glamor and, um, and distinction, you know, in, in a place that's 
not exactly thought of as, as a distinctive and glamorous place. Right. And I think that that works really well. The notion of translation in terms of the kinds of things that you're, that you're trying to put together. And it, it, at the same time, it also, it brings up the, the broader issue of your method, your stated method being a queer diaspora ethnography. And so you begin the book with a description of your own travels to Venezuela and the acts of translation that you have to undertake from North America mm-hmm. between rural and urban, ur- urban settings, sorry on the border of Venezuela and Colombia. And so it seems like the whole the whole book in a lot of ways is organized around the notion of translation and the method. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about about what you call queer diaspora ethnography. Uh, yes, queer diasporic ethnography is, I think, what I call diasporic, it. Yes, that's right. I'm um, sorry. And, um, yeah, I, you know, it was a, I feel like it was a little going out on a limb to, to call it that, but I, I did really want to sort of think about what it meant for for us to do ethnographic work. I mean, you know, there's been a, a huge critique of, of reflexivity and positionality and ethnography. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wanted to really focus on what it is that this allows us to see in a much more methodological way, right? Like, so what does it mean to, to see this spectacle? So I start the book in the introduction, um, with, uh, with the spectacle that I encountered there on the border, uh, between Colombia and Venezuela. Um, because of a particular kind of trip I was making uh, to see a family of mine that had lived undocumented in Venezuela for many years. My family, of course, was in Colombia. Um, and crossing that border actually helped me understand a lot more about the concept of transnationalism, right? And and even sort of the idea of, of being uh, subnational in some ways. My cousin, who was with me, Francis Mer, uh, uh, had grown up in Venezuela, and she was living in Armenia for a little while, and we thought, oh, no problem, we'll take the bus, uh, and we'll go, um, you know, visit my uncle. Um, and unfortunately, we had to, uh, they closed the roads because there was some uh, some conflict on the road between Bogota and Merida, and um, and so we were stuck in Bogota, and I actually tried to get her on an airplane. And at that moment, I realized she didn't carry a passport mm-hmm. uh, because she was born in Venezuela and did not receive a Venezuelan passport. Um, I don't think she even carried a birth certificate with her or anything like that. And she had spent her whole life, she was in you know, her late teens at that point, crossing back and forth without any problem um, on the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and it turned out that she couldn't, they wouldn't let her go through on the air, you know, on the plane because you need a, a passport. Um, this was in 1998, so before 9-11 even made that even more difficult. Um, so, uh, I realized that I was in this very particularly situated place to have gone through that process with my cousin, sent her back to Armenia, gotten on this plane, had to change planes in the middle of the, of the border. Um, and uh, and there I was, and I saw this spectacle unfold before me that I just uh, hadn't seen anywhere else. I had seen definitely a lot of divas in my community uh, in, in San Francisco at the time uh, creating spectacle, um, but I, I had never really seen it in such an everyday context. A flight attendant came on and, and did this performance of the airline flight safety procedures uh, that really had nothing to do with any of us who were on the plane. It was really... As I say in the book, she was on a different runway. Um, so, so for me, queer diasporic ethnography comes out of that moment of seeing and realizing that I was uniquely positioned to see that. 
Um, and I, I try to move away from an identitarian claim to kind of, uh, to a way of seeing because I have a specific identity or experience, but rather that that experience, that, uh, that project of producing my positionality in the world has placed me in these particular situations that then I start to notice things in. Um, and so I, you know, I talk about how you can sort of see queerly and diasporically. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, other people, I, I talk about a few other authors who do this, do something similar, not necessarily in the same way that I do it. And, you know, maybe not necessarily making claims about their own identities. Um, but, but definitely engaged in this project of seeing as an embodied person in the world through a particular transit. Right. And I want to get back to this notion of spectacle later on, especially mm-hmm. the politics of spectacle as you, as you understand it. But first, I wonder if you can tell us a, a little bit about your two main categories, because they may not be categories that are familiar to everyone. The yes. transformista and the miss. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, and this is actually something that I get a lot of feedback about when I present in different parts of Latin America. In Venezuela, transformista is a word that's used uh, often as an insult, but sometimes as a term of self-identification for a person who's assigned male sex at birth, but who grows up as a girl and a woman. Um, and, you know, sometimes this is done inside, you know, just without talking to anybody. That's sort of the identity that people have. Um, and, um, and often this involves, uh, you know, uh, styling oneself femininely, right? And then living um, in a feminine gender. Um, and so sometimes people are accepted in that gender and sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have to create explanatory narratives and say they're transsexual or um, now transgender is more of a term that's been used. Um, but but actually what people are called is transformista um, or transfor. Um, and so in other parts of Latin America and the Spanish speaking world, transformista means something very different. It means somebody who transforms themselves for the purposes of spectacle, for a show, right? Um, and I wanted to capture the very specific cultural meaning of transformista in Venezuela, um, and, and understand that it's quite different from what it means somewhere else. Uh, but also sort of value it as a local category and put it in dialogue with other local categories of gendered existence, um, miss being one of them, um, which I'll explain in just a minute, but also other categories like vestida in Mexico or travesti in Brazil um, or travestista in other parts of, of, of Latin America. Um, and for me, this is really about honoring the particularity of those categories uh, because often when we use a term like transgender, we really um, sort of pave over all of the distinctive genealogies of the emergence of gender in a particular place. Um, and if, if we don't, if we're not careful about our terminology, we, we lose the opportunity to see those histories. Right. Um, so the transformista then is, um, is you could call this a, a transformista as a category of transgendered existence in Venezuela. Um, some people would, you know, get a clearer idea if I say it's a male to female transgender person. Um, this is a person, you know, again, who's assigned male sex at birth and who lives in uh, feminine gender. Um, and um, and then people have their own accounts of kind of what their gender is. And if you ask, I've asked many 
transformistas, uh, kind of what, what it means. Um, and they'll just say, you know, I'm a Catholic. That's what I am. You know, they they won't say, uh, as they won't be as careful with the, the definition because it's not as relevant for them. They, they just, that's the term they use. Mm-hmm. Um, the miss um, is another interesting term in Venezuela, and in, I think in other parts of Venezuela, in, of Latin America, you hear this term um, also used. Um, but Miss Venezuela, um, of course, is the beauty pageant uh, that is at the national level, which then feeds into the Miss Universe and Miss World pageants and other international pageants. Uh, so Miss is a term that comes back comes from the early ni- the early twentieth century. Um, to uh, to describe the, a contestant in a beauty pageant. Um, usually it's the winner of the beauty pageant, but now um, in Venezuela, when you say somebody is a miss, it means they look like they could be in a beauty pageant. Um, so I, I decided to take that up as a, as a term, um, sort of doing a, a taxonomical project, uh, you know, like uh, Sedgwick and Halberstam have both have, um, tried to encourage us to do. Um, uh, of identifying what genders are operative in a particular place. I call it gender as an empirical project, right? Um, and so I, I realized that, you know, woman is a very, um, you know, small, it's a very um, uh, limited category to explain the sort of plethora of experience within the category woman, right? right. And so that if we start to parse out, well, what kind of woman are we talking about? This is one kind of woman, this miss, right? Um and um, and I think that really helps decenter the sort of monolithic nature of woman that we use in feminist studies, um, and that that we use in kind of the ethnography of gender. Right, um, and especially if you put the two together in the same frame, and I, I, well, you probably have a lot more to say about that later on. Mm-hmm. But um, so I want to move, start moving through the book now, and I was really interested to to see the way that you've organized the book. So you so we move through orders of magnitude, as you say. Yeah. So first. We, we are, we're sort of at a, at a high um, level, uh, if you want to call it that. So mm-hmm. it's, we're looking at the, the national and the transnational, and then we move to the runway and the street, and then finally come to rest on the body. And I was really curious to hear you talk a little bit more about why you decided to organize it this way. You know, I had this really wonderful um, uh, exercise that was given to me in graduate school when I was uh, doing my dissertation writing workshop. <laughs> Um, and I'll always be grateful to Barbara Voss for having uh, introduced me to this technique. Uh, and, uh, you know, we were all back from the field and sort of swimming in the experience we just had and the, and the moment, uh, monumental task of writing a dissertation. And uh, one thing she asked us to do was to draw a picture of our dissertation. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, what's uh, amazing about a picture is you have to reduce things to icons. You know, anybody who draws will, I don't, I don't, not a very good draw, draw, drafter myself, but, but I have friends who, who draw who talk about this. Um, but, uh, you, you know, you have to reduce, you can't possibly draw every single point of detail on somebody's face, for example, to, to render them. So you have to kind of find the most basic elements of that. Uh, that you see and create that representation. And that's what I had to do for my dissertation. And I realized as I was doing it that I was drawing uh, sort of, it was pretty hard to do actually, uh, but I was drawing uh, kind of a, a world scale, kind of a global scale of things. Um, but then I had to also kind of pay attention, not just to like the people uh, who were sort of part of the scene, but even to the very detailed, um, you know, bits of them, 
in on their bodies um and you know sort of for me the iconic representation was a, a perfectly manicured arched eyebrow um and uh, and the labor that goes into producing that you know and what that does in somebody's life um on a day-to-day basis right because we put a lot of energy into making those eyebrows like that um and so i realized that it was just so it's, it felt so out of um you know, the realm of possibility to do something of that scope, you know. Um, but as I broke it down into these different uh, orders of magnitude, I realized that I could sort of articulate each one. Um, uh, and it was productive to kind of group parts of the fieldwork that I'd done in those uh, uh, kinds of scale. Um, the other thing that was important about organizing it that way for me was that I didn't want to create a segregated organization of, of the book into beauty queens and transformistas, misses and transformistas, um, uh, because I, I feel like what we're talking about, uh, what I was talking about when I was uh, putting it all together, didn't, ex- you know, didn't separate them. It actually thought of them together. So, uh, so this uh, orders of magnitude really allowed me to bring them together in different moments um, in ways that were not necessarily, for example, causal, um, which is a, a part of the project of the book was to create a, uh, a hypothesis about gender and media that was not a causal hypothesis, but rather a study in parallel of discourse. Right. And I noticed that as the book progresses, I don't know if you wrote it this way intentionally, but as the book progresses, the, the, the analyses converge almost mm. onto the, onto the bodies in which the, the, the misses and the transformistas are, are, are doing this almost the same kinds of things to their bodies. Mm-hmm. But uh, we can talk about that a little bit later. I just want to sure. uh, pick up on chapter one and the 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 relationship between the national and the transnational and these and race in particular. And your argument, I was interested in your argument about um, <clears throat> misses and how the mm-hmm. they they kind of embody the nation's particular racial discourses at particular times. Right. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk more about this and in, in, especially the, the idea that you have of missing race. I, yes. I liked that formulation. Uh, you know, I actually got that idea from a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was in Sara in Caracas. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the store Sara. Uh-huh, uh, yes. That's a Spanish uh, yeah chain transnational chain uh and at the time there wasn't any there weren't any sadas in the united states so i was i was very enthralled with sada as a place uh to to consume fashion and um uh there was actually a shirt uh and it said you know it had the sort of outline of a beauty queen it's one of those gestalt drawings where like the sort of shape of the beauty queen is there so you saw her hair you saw the shining of her tooth you know her smile off of her tooth the glint um you saw the the sash but there was no woman there um and and the shirt said miss ing um and uh and i thought oh my god this is my dissertation on a t-shirt so i uh i i had that i of course got the shirt immediately and and still have it um but um you know this idea that like the feminine uh the spectacle of femininity absence the, the the porter you know the, the person that carries that spectacle is, is a really interesting one that I play with throughout the book um, but but what I started to realize is actually uh, there's this incredible work going on um, throughout the 20th century in the pageant and other parts of Venezuelan society to really uh, elide particularly blackness but also indigeneity um, and and uh, 
into the discourse of racial admixture or criollismo. And of course, that's going on much, much before the 20th century. Um, but it takes this particular form of the myth in, in Venezuela in the 20th century. Um, and so, you know, of course, the beauty pageant has been criticized and rightfully so as a, as a site of racial, um, exclusion, um, as a place that, uh, that focuses on shaping bodies of, of women into, um, into the European kind of beauty canon. Uh, Maritza Montero calls it altercentrismo. She's a social psychologist that, that writes in Venezuela. Um, is this idea of, of looking outside of, of, of Venezuela and, and the bodies of Venezuelan women. Uh, but then at the same time, there's this parallel discourse that, uh, that Venezuelans are particularly good, uh, at producing beauty queens because of their racial admixture. And so that they're sort of, the theory is, and, and this has been articulated by, um, uh, Osmel Sosa, as well as several economists that have studied the beauty pageant industry in Venezuela. Um, that, that uh, Osma Sosa being the star of beauty, of course, in Venezuela, the director, the president of the Miss Venezuela organization. Um, but the theory is that, um, you know, no matter what the trend is in the world, uh, whatever look is, uh, is uh, really uh, in style in that particular moment, Venezuela has some woman that conforms to that look. So whether, you know, it's more of an African look or whether it's more of a, you know, blonde look, or whether it's more of like a, a Latina look, uh, Venezuela can come up with the woman to to um, intervene and in, in, on the global stage and and take the crown. Uh, and in fact, they of course had an incredible success. Um, and every year that I uh, that this book wasn't in press, uh, I had to update the number of. Uh, beauty pageants, uh, titles that Miss Venezuela had won. Uh, so I think now it's at 11, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, but, uh, this idea of, of, um, you know, belleza venezolana, uh, that, that there's something intrinsic about the, the geographical accident and, you know, long, uh, economic processes that have produced the population in Venezuela. That then create um, this success for Venezuelans on the global stage, and of course, I think uh, you know it's a bit you know it's it's a it's a fantasy. It's not it's not actually that there is some sort of better racial stock in Venezuela that is just good for beauty pageants. Um, it, it is that there's a lot of people who are deeply invested in the process of um, of producing beauty queens and they practice at it and they work at it very hard and they invest a lot of time and effort, um, whether or not there's any chance of, of their participation in the national pageant. Um, and so you have a lot more people to choose from. Um, and this is what the, uh, economist that came from Sweden to look at why Miss Venezuela was so much better than Miss Sweden came up with, uh, you know, they sort of, um, they bought into the racial admixture thing, but, but also, I mean, you have a, a larger, population of people of, of pe- interested people in the country um so but but i realized that you have to kind of look at this also at the level of um you know sublimation um in venezuela and and the ways that i i was really struck by and worked really hard to find um a vocabulary to talk about race in venezuela that didn't colonize venezuelan racial formations with my own experience of u.s racial formations um, 
and uh and so it was it was a very tricky thing because we would have conversations i would have conversations with friends in in venezuela who were you know to me if we were walking down the street in san francisco they would be black um and they did not identify as black <laughs> and so they identified as criolla right and so you know uh there was there was no way to sort of um make that vocabulary commensurate right uh because they that narrative of blackness was not one that they were felt held by or felt like they were um and so trying to find a language for a process that has been that has produced a, a deep racial disparity in Venezuela um poverty um you know and and lack of access to healthcare for example you know i think still but up until very recently without any intervention on the part of the state um are are distributed um among along a color line um and so uh more indigenous descended more afro descended venezuelans are more likely to live in poverty and not have access to healthcare and and basic services um and uh and it's really difficult to sort of have a conversation in Venezuela um that that talks about that because we we'll, continually um return to the narrative of racial democracy right and i experienced a little bit of this in my in my uh kind of life with my uncles in colombia who would sort of um also sort of put the united states as sort of the paragon of um segregation which you know i can say fair enough um but but uh but then at the same time would not uh recognize the way that racism was acting in their own societies and the ways that afro descendant colombians were uh were uh segregated and um and you know uh treated unfairly right um and their own prejudice against them so i really was you know worked really hard in this chapter to to come up with a language to talk about race and what i realized um i'm di- i'm deeply informed by jesus martin barbero's concept of mediation um and uh jesus martin barbero is a um spanish born communications theorist who lives in or li- lives in colombia at last i heard um he he worked in colombia m- most of his life um and has done some really wonderful work thinking about popular culture, cultural studies in Latin America. He's a very big figure in Latin American cultural studies, of course. Um and he proposes this concept of mediations to talk about uh, telenovelas in Colombia and in other parts of the world. Um and what I really like about mediations is that it helps us reimagine the relationship between uh media and self-making in a way that it doesn't focus on the content of the media, but rather what is what the engagement with the content produces what it mediates right um and and he's talking about mediation in this very open term which then i sort of took and made even more open i think um and maybe he wouldn't agree with that what i what i did with it but um i sort of uh i i i'm really excited to take media out of the object of media which is a, a, either a media product or a media consumer and think about mediation as a way to sort of work with media texts uh media practices um things like reception theory um as a as a way to understand what all of this produces in the end and that's what he focuses on what does it mediate and i realized that also bodies are mediations in certain ways because martin barbero talks about um and he's here influenced by edgar moran um but he talks about mediation um 
as the sort of um, the transfer from the imaginary, from the sort of level of the imaginary discourse that that was that which is intangible is how I see it um, into the real. Right. And, and, you know, of course, you'd have to be invested in the idea of the real to kind of go along with him on that. But I actually so I, I read it as the intangible to the tangible. So how does an, an intangible discourse materialize in society? Right. Um, so when you think about the telenovela, um, what he suggests is we think about how this intangible sort of uh, mythology that's that's operating in the telenovela, the archetypes, but also the practices of, of viewing telenovela. What do they produce tangibly? They produce a lot of people engaged in a practice on a regular basis, connecting with each other, talking about the story that's unfolding, right? Um, and, you know, he's, he's really interested in melodrama. And he says, even though you know the, the story, how it's going to end, you're more engaged in sort of that process of, of talking about the story with the people around you, passing judgment on the story even, uh, or, or having something to say about it. Um, and that sort of moves your day forward, you know, and if you spend all your day working in a factory and you come home and you have this story to engage with, then, then that story has mediated a particular kind of wage labor, right? Um, it's mediated a kind of morality that's sort of floating around in the air around sexuality, for example, uh, which I wish you would talk more about, but I think that's up to other people now, um, uh, you know, around um, gender, um, you know, all these things are going on with telenovelas. And, and if we just look at the content um, and try to make an analysis of, you know, who the characters are, which is a fine thing to do. Uh, but if we just look at that part of it, we won't actually see what it produces in the world, uh, you know, as, as people consume. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And you can, you can really see that in, in some of the examples that you've selected. I'm thinking in particular of an example at the very end of the book, which we're not at yet, but, but the scene where the transformistas are actually enacting a pageant yes. um, and they're recording it and they're watching themselves record it. And it becomes a very um, sort of intertextual experience where they're producing these performances of gender in all of these kinds of ways. Right. Um, and, and I think my argument there is that we all do this. We all know the conventions that we, we've learned, you know, um, and, and, and it is such a powerful force to, um, it, to, to the ways we make meaning in our lives, um, you know, that, that we will replicate it constantly, right? Um, so in terms of, um, of race, I think that the Miss body is a mediation of race in Venezuela. Um, in other words, the body of the Miss mediates this you know, ideal racial type of the criolla, which then, of course, contains all of this sort of Eurocentric um, aesthetics and actively, you know, shamelessly suppresses non-Eurocentric aesthetics, right? So, uh, you know, uh, Osmer Sosa, who's, you know, uh, I definitely don't agree with, but who is a wonderful source to quote because he's so direct about it, will just say, and in the book I, I, I cite this, he will just say, there are no beautiful black women in Venezuela. Hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, as, as heinous as that is, there is uh, no clearer an articulation of, of, the, of the kinds of dis- disparagement that I've seen. And I've had students, for example, who are working on Afro-descendant Venezuelans experience 
um, around blackness, right? So, so for me, this, the miss is like look, talking about how the miss erases um, that whole conversation about race by becoming the icon of of Venezuelanism, right? Of criollismo. So then I, I use the example of the harina pan miss, um, right. which is was often called la negrita de harina pan. Incidentally, uh, but she doesn't have these features that are typically associated with like a, an Aunt Jemima figure or something like that. Right. Uh, 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 you know, there are a lot of these figures in the Americas of uh, basically uh, women uh, who are wearing kind of domestic servant garb um, and who are placed on usually flour uh, or some kind of food product um, and then circulated uh, as, a, as a way to think about um, the proxy of, of a servant now in modernity is a pre-made flour, right? And so in Venezuela, we have a harina pan, which is an arepa flour. Um, and, um, you know, arepas are a main staple of the, of the Venezuelan and Colombian diets. Um, uh, and then, so there's these corn cakes in case you don't know about them. Uh, they're delicious. You should try one sometime. Um, but, uh, you know, we have this figure, and she really starts out uh, with a very elongated neck, very light-skinned, very small nose, big eyes, high cheekbones, a little spit curl on her cheek, um, and, uh, and also the headscarf and the uh, earrings that you would see on, that you would see earlier, you know, in earlier iterations of an Aunt Jemima figure, for example. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about, um, about the, the sort of shift in these figures is that in... Um, in the case of Aunt Jemima, we see she she drops the, the the different revisions of Aunt Jemima actually drop the trappings of servitude. They take her headscarf away, they take away the lace collar, um, they take away the big earrings, uh, and then she turns into a businesswoman. Uh, and so now, if you look at a package of Aunt Jemima flour, you'll find a businesswoman, right? Um, and that's that's kind of how the United States deals with that legacy, right, of figuring this particular kind of icon. Um, in Venezuela, uh, she drops her blackness, you know. So for me, I think this is, and the miss is what allows uh, uh, the Polar Company to sort of represent Venezuelanism without having to contend with its blackness, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I think a lot about this as a national brand and, and dialogue with uh, Lauren Berlant's work, of course. But then it gets even more complicated, if you don't mind, I, I'll say a little bit more about this, in that you can't actually read a mammy figure in Venezuela the same way as you would read in the United States. Um, and uh, I found this out because I encountered a mammy uh, that was revolutionary. I was part of, it's the logo of Mission Negra Polita, one of the Bolivarian missions. And I encountered Mission Negra Polita because I went to um, visit some transformistas that I had worked with in Venezuela. Um, and uh, they had found this mission as a place to get off the street. It's a mission that works with indigent people, street people in urban areas of Venezuela. Um, and it provides uh, shelter, drug treatment, food, that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, these transformistas had basically insisted on their uh, right to receive services from Mission Negrepolita. Well, Negrepolita was one of um, Simon Bolivar's wet nurses. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it just, uh, you know, c- continues to fascinate me that the genealogy of this mammy figure um, can mean something so different because you can't imagine a progressive social project in the United States that connects to a foundational part part of a, of a national narrative being centered around a black woman that, you know, that would look like a mammy, 
right? Right, and even in the context of Venezuela, as you've described it, it's this is a relative. This is a new and different kind of way of imagining race and nation. Well, it's a counter aesthetic, and this is what the Bolivarian Re- Revolution is really trying to do. I think, right? Um, and I think that the intervention is actually quite strong in terms of political culture in Venezuela. Um, you know, I, I there's we can talk a little bit later about the sort of. Um, um, the polemics around uh, the Bolivarian Revolution, but what I can say for sure is that it's created these openings um, in the imaginary of who a citizen is in Venezuela that have hailed people that I've seen completely excluded from that category. Right. Um, in 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 my work, and so that to me is a very deep intervention, and I think it's going to take a long time, really, to um, to fully do its work. Um, but but I think this, you know, it's very clear. That this this aesthetic, this mammy that's being used by the Bolivarian Revolution, is very much a counter to the Eurocentrism of a lot of figurations of, of the Venezuelan state in the past. Yeah, and that that brings us actually in a in a roundabout sort of way to the to the discussion of transformistas, which sits alongside the the misses, mm-hmm. and you talk about the ways that they both challenge and reinscribe the category of nation in the ways that they occupy it or don't. And you have the, the mm-hmm. image of the, the film that you start out with. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, but also um, tell us more about what you call the space of death and the way that transformistas occupy that, because that, that's a, it's a whole new and additional dimension to your analysis that I think is important to bring out, and especially yeah. in terms of the notion of violence that you bring mm-hmm. into the mix of media, nation, femininity, beauty, etc. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so the, the transformistas, uh, you know, I start out, this is in chapter two, um, I start out talking a little bit about what it means to sort of develop the process of modernity in Venezuela and sort of base my analysis in this um, interesting anxiety that I would encounter, sometimes anxiety, sometimes sort of a a joyful um, kind of playful invocation uh, of the failure of Venezuelans to accomplish modernity, right? Um, And uh, and when I say failure, I I actually think of it very respectfully. I I think, you know, in many many, uh, corners, of critique of Venezuelan political culture. There is a deep anxiety about Venezuelans being unable to be good democratic subjects of populism, of, um, you know, uh, of a, of an electorate that just didn't care. Um, you know, and, and, you know, sort of, uh, Chavez coming in through this populist wave, um, in, in 98, um, you know, uh, and and all of that uh, critique sort of discounts the political agency of Venezuelans who aren't figured as you know uh, sort of loyal, good, um, you know uh, middle class, uh, white aspiring subjects, right? Um, and this is one of the things I think is really important about the Venezuelan the, the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, so uh, I actually take the the phrase. Um, the space of death from Michael Tausig, of course, um, in his work in the Colombian Putumayo. And I read that actually in Ruth Bahar's class back in, in undergrad. Uh, and I, uh, ha- has really st- stayed with me ever since then. Um, I also really was deeply informed by, um, Sharon Holland's use of Tausig to understand black queerness in the United States and the idea that in order for U- the U.S. to imagine its subjectivity, Black subjecthood had to be um, 
necessarily placed in the space of death, right? Um, so she's trying to use, uh, I think Sharon is trying to use a, a semiotic argument, and I think Taussig is also trying to use this excessive sig- signification of, of colonial violence, right? Um, to try to understand the contemporary shape of social relations, right? Uh, in Taussig's case, he's looking at shamanic healing practices, um, and of course, Sharon Holland is looking at uh, kind of black popular culture and queer culture. Um, and and so I take that space of death to look at the bodies of transformistas um, who have experienced a great deal of violence. And I say that transformistas have inhabited this space of death. Um, you know, the way Taussig uh, accounts for it is essentially that the, the shamans uh, who are sort of encountering this or, or who who sort of have dealings with the space of death are charged by it, right? They're sort of, um, they're, they're having survived it um, or having emerged from it as a, as a generational legacy um, gives them a sort of um, aura that they then work with. And that's where they do their healing work is in that space. Um, and, and I think, uh, a similar thing can be said. And sometimes we call this stigma. You know, that's what Irving Goffman called it. And I think stigma is a very two dimensional term to think about it, you know, because it really doesn't, um, it's really more about what other people think than it is about how people experience that category. Um, but, uh, you know, if you can imagine that somebody who is so socially excluded, then, uh, understands how to work with that, uh, the way that people see them, right? Um, and understands how, you know, their, for lack of a better word, shamefulness, right? Their scandal um, is, is one way I talk about it later, um, actually scares people around them um, and keeps them away, right? So in that sense, transformistas really use this mythology that they're violent people, that they're diseased, you know, all these things that, that they're, you know, that they're sex workers. They use this mythology to actually um, manage people around them. Um, and, um, and I think, uh, you know, this idea of the space of death for me is a really key to understanding the possibilities of survival in Latin America for queer and trans people um, and for sexual alterity in general. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Taussig is talking about uh, colonial alterity, but I think you, we can't actually separate these things, um, you know, from each other. We can't separate sort of the ways that genders and, and racial formations are, are kind of um, developed through the process of, of colonization um, and enslavement. Uh, you know, these things have resonances for generations after they happen, right? And so these the, these are the ways. Taussig has given me some great tools to think about how these particular kinds of bodies are then um, treated in society. Um, and this is a you know it's a circuit that produces marginality for people. Um, it produces social exclusion. Uh, it produces violence. Um, and so I think to understand it and to understand how people survive it, we really have to look at those forms of governmentality that uh, that w- have really emerged out of this particular area. Right. And you see, you see all of this coming together in really 
interesting and unexpected kinds of ways in the second part of the book, which which takes the runway and the street as the two kind of categories that bridge the national and the transnational and the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about um, about the street libertador because that has a big, a big role in the yes. in the book, of and we're, we're we're almost. Um, Running out of time, but I, but I, but I think that that's an important part of the book to talk about, just the the street itself and how how relevant it is to to everything that that you're thinking about. Sure, and it's Avenida Libertador. Uh, it's a, uh, what I was struck by when I first got to Venezuela was that I would say, oh, I'm interested in working with transformistas, and everybody and their mother would tell me, oh, if you want to find transformistas, just go to Avenida Libertador. <laughs> and I realized, like, I don't know any other place where you know. Everybody knows where the transgender sex workers are. <laughs> they don't usually have that kind of visibility, right? And so um, I resisted it for a while because I wanted to encounter trans women in Venezuela in other ways as well. Um, but uh, so I worked with several transgender activists as well. Um, but really, transformistas were, uh, I, I really found them in um, Avenida Libertador in hair salons um, and in, in other parts of, of, of Caracas. So um, the Avenida was a really interesting space for me. And I, I learned a lot actually from um, feminist archaeology um, and and uh, geography in thinking about the space. Um, I realized that Avenida Libertador had a particular history. And so rather than sort of just keeping it as the background of where the transformistas did their work, I wanted to understand why did they end up doing their work there? How did they get there? How long have they been there? And what does that say about what that work uh, means on the urban scene um, to them, uh, you know, in terms of everyday life? And what I realized was that the Avenida Libertador has this really amazing feature, which is uh, called the Pasarela. And it's a set of uh, pedestrian overcrossings, essentially linking one side of the street to another over an express lane, a set of express lanes that flow below the pedestrian level of the street. So these pasarelas are like catwalks, kind of. Um, you can sort of imagine that um, that these uh, transformistas would be out on the on the pasarela, walking back and forth and strutting and, and posing and modeling um, on either side of the pasarela. And it was also a really great way for them to... Um, Manage the flow of traffic and the and their distance between 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 them and clients, people who might do them harm, police, all these different kinds of factors that were going on. So it was really the pasarela was actually a, also a, a tactical tool, um, but it was a tool of of imaginary projection, and it really provides them an opportunity to show themselves to all of Caracas that happens to be passing by. This is one of the central thoroughfares of, of Caracas to get from the, the center to the east side. You have to go down this avenue. Um, it gets very backed up um, so that a lot of times people are sitting in traffic for a long time and they see transformista. Um, and um, and so they work the space. And, and I think it was really important for me as much as I um, described what transformistas were doing in this place that I understood the way that this became a stage for them, right? Um, the way that this is a place from which to project oneself. 
Right. And this notion of spectacle comes back mm-hmm. uh, towards the end, which really, uh, when you when you start to focus on the body and you draw on on the materialist, what you call the materialist methodology, and I, I was really, mm-hmm. um, I liked the, the notion of the, the body that splatters as a uh-huh. splattering entity. Yes, the, Diane Nelson. Yeah, and the real, the, the kind of really thinking about the materiality of what mm-hmm. it is that you're talking about. And in particular, the, 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 the fascinating convergence of both Mrs. and the Transformistas in the ways that they modify their bodies mm-hmm. to meet particular ideals of femininity. Um, and but but just to to to, to wrap up, I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about this discussion of spectacle and frivolity, and mm-hmm. especially you make a case for for spectacle as a kind of register through which individuals signify different things. But then you also go on to make an argument about frivolity as having a politics. And mm-hmm. I find this one of your boldest and kind of most intriguing claims. Mm. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what the politics of frivolity are. Well, yes. Uh, so I, I think um, I'll just say something very quick about spectacle, and that is that I, I feel like um, uh, we we haven't spent enough time thinking about how spectacle works and what it does. Um, we, we're more interested in um, in sort of thinking about how it blinds people, but not why people participate in it. And so I really wanted to kind of work with spectacle as a, as a register for signifying gender, because I think that something about femininity that I see a lot uh, when people are creating sort of performances of femininity is actually the relationship to either an an actual or imagined audience, or some people might call it a gaze. Right. Um, And so that relationship to the gaze um, is really about managing um, interpersonal space, relationships, um, the people around you. And it creates the possibility of, um, of creating the space of distinction, right? That, that is, um, I call it glamour. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a, a space that even if you're in a very marginal circumstance that you can kind of employ these conventions to, um, to draw the gaze and, and, and uh, draw attention to yourself. So for me, it was important to spend some time really meditating on what, um, what that, what the role of spectacle did, was for several of the people, Mrs. Entras or Mrs. that participated in the study. Um, and, you know, uh, to the claim of frivolity, I think this, this is in the conclusion. Um, I, I wanted to just really make a case. And I think this was actually a really hard case to make. Uh, I didn't, uh, a lot of people didn't kind of go with me on it, but I, I hope I've, I've made it clear. Um, you know, uh, those things that we think of as frivolous are always gendered feminine, right? Um, you know, when, when things are being dismissed, um, as ideas in, in a, in a discussion, let's say a political discussion about, uh, a meeting, um, or, you know, I've been working with transgender Latinas in San Francisco on, you know, what does it mean to create a political presence for transgender Latinas, right? Um, and when we, when people bring up things like beauty pageants, um, which that has actually been a, a, an idea or shows, um, they, they are dismissed as not being political enough, right? They're not political. And what I'm saying is that actually it's the, you know, the politics of seriousness, um, and, and the rejection of frivolity 
is a way of marginalizing the feminine in political discourse, right? So I would rather create a political project centered in those things that have been marginalized as frivolous um, and those subjects that are seen as non, not political. Um, because I think uh, there's actually some interesting work going on there. Um, so, so I take up frivolity um, as a kind of politics, as a contingent kind of politics, um, and I think of um, glamour as well as a political project. Um, again, one that rests on a kind of hegemonic recognition that often isn't good for us in the end, but but is still a tactic and a, and a way to shift power relations in your immediate environment. And I see it as a really important survival tool for the transgender women that I've worked with. Right. And you have a, you have a, um, you close with a thought about the, the struggles of survival and how they are related to glamour and frivolity and imagination and also impossibility and melodrama. And I think that those are just really very powerful way to think about the two, the two categories of people that you put it into the same analytical frame. And I think not just for a sort of thinking about Venezuela and Latin America, but also more broadly for thinking about feminist anthropology in general. So I, I, I just want to thank you for that yeah, contribution. Um, so we've taken up a lot of your time, and I wonder if we can close by just uh, asking you to talk a little bit about what you're working on right now. Well, um, my new work, uh, I have sort of two lines of, of thought that I'm working in right now. Um, one is around transgender citizenship. So the second book that I'm working on uh, right now is called Ciudadana Trans, um, and it's about um, transgender Latina citizenship in Venezuela and in my and in migration as well as in San Francisco, um, I'm looking at different ways that trans Latinas, as we call them in San Francisco, uh, relate to structural exclusion and produce the terms of of uh, belonging and self determination um, that that they want in their lives. Um, so that's one one project, um, and I've been doing that work in San Francisco for about eight years now. Uh, working at uh, one, I'm one of the founders of Ella para Trans Latinas, uh, which has been working in the Mission District since 2006, um, and uh, we're we're really I think coming into a new era of visibility for transgender women of color in uh, American political culture in the United States. Um, and I think um, also for visibility of trans women uh, internationally and transnationally. So I'm, I'm really excited to kind of add something to that discussion based on those folks who are undocumented and, um, and as such often excluded from some of the civil society formations. Um, the other work that I'm doing is a, uh, a little bit more around colonial um, sort of lines. I, I actually published an article about a, a, a 17th century, uh, what I call polemically transgender conquistador, Catalina de Rauso, La Monja Alferes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this was published in an edited volume a while back. I don't think anybody ever read it, but, um, but I really enjoyed that work because uh, I had to study uh, colonial uh, sort of history in order to understand the contemporary moment in, in Venezuela. Um, and so this, this next project is following, um, the sort of ripples of Balboa's 1513, um, incidents in Cuarequa, where it's on the verge of, of, uh, viewing the Pacific Ocean for the first time. Um, 
and uh, just before he he climbs the mountain, a couple of days before he encounters a, a, a community of indigenous people, um, kills about six hundred, from what I understand. And the next day, he's uh, given a tribute of uh, about forty to fifty um, people who are uh, not conventionally masculine but male bodied, right? And so he has his dogs. Uh, he sets his dogs on them, um, and this becomes this kind of foundational uh, story of his ruthlessness, of his zeal against uh, gender diversity in Latin America. Um, and um, and it, it becomes part of, you know, the, the cruelty that's attributed to him. But I'm trying to create some continuities between that form of masculine governmentality in the, in the colonial period and contemporary forms of policing trans-Latina trans bodies. Um, and particularly around, around the artwork of Angelia Bravo, uh, who uh, has worked in a collaborative project to document a dog attack uh, against a trans a transformista uh, who, whose name is Yahaira Falcon. So that's the, that's kind of what I'm working on now. I have two special issues that have just come out. One is about um, about the viscerality of colonialism, so sort of processes of consumption and desire, and how they play themselves out in the in the body. Uh, it's called On the Visceral, and it's a special issue of GLQ. And, uh, and it was also a part of an editing team for a special issue of Transgender Studies Quarterly, which is called Decolonizing the Transgender Imaginary. Thank you so much. Those sound both very fascinating, and we'll look forward to seeing more in print. Um, thanks for being with us. It's really been a terrific conversation. All right. I really appreciate the chance to share this work. <laughs>